Hey, this is Robbie Shaw. This is Patrick Bosley. And I'm Sam Hampson. And this is Champagne Problems, where we come together to explore the gray areas of drinking. This is a judgment-free zone where we can all take a look at how we make decisions about our relationship with alcohol. So we're back in the studio today to discuss prevention and more specifically underage drinking prevention. We have a special guest today. His name is Curtis Taylor. He is the executive director of Alcohol Drug Council of North Carolina. We are going to dive into information that should benefit all the parents out there that are looking to implement some strategy and some education into their parenting efforts. So we're going to have some tough conversations today. This is going to be, you know, this is a touchy, a touchy subject and something that we've discussed on previous episodes, but it's something that, that we absolutely need to talk about. And I feel responsible to talk about it, not only from, you know, my perspective as a professional, um, as a person in recovery, but, but as a father. We got a really awesome guest on today, but first I, I want to, I think it's a good idea for the three of us to kind of clear the air and set some serious intentions for what this conversation is going to look like, because I don't want it to rub people the wrong way. And I don't want our listeners to feel like we are in any way, shape or form shaming or judging anybody for, for their drinking. And that really needs to be heard before we jump into this conversation, because it's going to be a tough one. Yeah, if we take this back to the mission of the podcast, we are here to share information, right? We're just here to inform. And this is actually a request that we've gotten a lot of feedback from our listeners saying, hey, we'd love to hear more about prevention. We loved hearing Robbie and Ashley talk about parenting. We love, you know, the conversation with Chris Heron, and we just want to know more about how to talk about it, how to prevent it. I think when you're asking for that, you've got to look at the whole package and you know, us three kind of share the same approach clinically of just confronting you with the reality of what's happening. And so if you're asking for kind of prevention techniques, strategies, if you're asking for a big picture on prevention, it does actually include what substances you use in your own household in front of children. And so I say all that to say it's not meant to be shaming or blaming in the sense that if you have a child who does go on to drink problematically, if you have a child that does use substances, you are not to be blamed for that, nor is it your fault. With the same token, you do have the opportunity to equip them with the skills, with the questions, and with all the factual data-driven information so that they can make their own informed decisions. So that's really what we're here to do is talk about everything that could play into prevention. And it's not just on parents, yet it's a lot on parents to be able to speak to some of this stuff. I'm really excited about our guest today. I want to welcome Curtis Taylor to Champagne Problems. Curtis is the executive director of the Alcohol Drug Council of North Carolina, and uh, he also is involved with a lot of other stuff in, in the community here in North Carolina in regards to substance use. Curtis, if you don't mind, let our listeners know what all else you're involved with. Oh my goodness. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I saw the list. Yeah. That long list. Well, so so as my t-shirt says, I am for second chances, right? The the reentry uh, population, um, I'm, I'm extremely passionate about helping people 
transition from incarceration in a manner to where they'll never ever return to that situation again in their life. I'm the current uh, co-chair of the North Carolina Substance Use Disorder Federation. I am the chair-elect for the Coalition of North Carolina, which combines all three disabilities, that's substance use, mental health, and uh, intellectual and developmental disabilities. Um, I, you really want me to go down this, this whole list? <laughs> you don't have to go down the whole list, just a high level. I mean, I think we get the idea. You are super involved. <laughs> yeah, I, I would say so. And, and rightly so. I mean, I've, uh, I've received uh, so much help. I've benefited greatly from the help of others and, and the, the passion and the advocacy of my predecessors. So, um, you know, I'm, I feel obligated to, to get in where I fit in and be, be that person, you know, for those um, behind me. Curtis, tell us a little bit about what got you started in, in this area of work and what drives your passion for doing what you do. You know, it's pretty simple. Uh, my name's Curtis Taylor, and I'm a person in long-term recovery. And what that means for me is that I have not used alcohol or any other substance in over 18 years now. And so, Congrats. thank you, thank you. Um, so, so, you know, having that lived experience, you know, going through what I've gone through and, and, and now living the life that I'm living today, um, it, it, it just makes sense that I would be uh, passionate about this particular subject. Yeah. Yeah. You're in good company. <laughs> <That's>... <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about the Alcohol Drug Council of North Carolina and their mission and, and how you're involved in that. Yeah. So, so the Alcohol Drug Council of North Carolina, um, our pr primary function is that we operate an information and referral hotline. We're unique in that we serve all 100 counties. We service the entire state of North Carolina. Our services are free to the user, to, North, to the citizens that utilize us. So any North Carolina citizen that finds themselves, uh, whether it's uh, they're personally challenged with a substance use disorder, or if it's someone, a loved one, someone that they're dealing with that uh, presents with a substance use disorder, and a lot of folks don't know where to start, where to even begin to look to, to access services um, our system in the state uh, can be fragmented. It can look very different from urban to rural communities and so on and so forth. And so that's where we come in. Um, they call our hotline number, which is 1-800-688-4232. And one of my staff picks up that phone call and they go through a series of questions. They do an assessment, if you will, not a clinical assessment, but, but an assessment to find out, okay, so what is the appropriate level of care for this individual? And then what types of services might be the best fit? We're not married to any particular treatment modality or recovery pathway. We embrace and respect all recovery pathways. And we just simply connect folks to, uh, to what we feel like is going to best help them in their current situation. Phenomenal. Nice. Awesome. Yeah. Awesome. So necessary. That is great. Curtis, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to transition a little over into the prevention side of things. What do you think the most common misconceptions are around alcohol use in young people? Yeah, so it's interesting, right? So about 94% of youth feel like alcohol use uh, or underage drinking rather is a problem in, in the state of North Carolina, right? Just in general or among youth? Yeah, just in general. Okay, gotcha. That, that is a serious problem. However, when their parents were asked the same question, 
only about half of them felt wow. like it was a serious issue. So I think that's the probably the largest misconception of all is that uh, adults, for some reason, are, are, are pretending, or, you know, ostrich with the head in the sand, uh, pretending like it's not happening when when it is indeed happening. And, and it can be a real serious issue. Man, Interesting. That, that's, that's, that really surprises me. Um, the power of denial. That, that, that's, <laughs> I mean, that's scary. <laughs> That that yeah. you know the that the kids are actually seeing the problem that the parents should be helping prevent. Right. <laughs> that's, right. That's just well. Even knowing that is is gives you some sort of idea of where to, you know, focus. That's right. How does the alcohol drug council like? What kind of stance do they take on prevention, and how much of of your work there is revolved around prevention? I know you and I talked about your talk it out campaign a little bit. And you guys have yeah. been trying to push a little bit more around the prevention aspect. Tell, tell us about that. How are you all getting involved in the community and delivering information around prevention? And what does that look like? Yeah, well, first, I guess I need to say that, that I'm not a quote-unquote prevention professional, right? I don't have a, yeah. preven- a prevention degree or certification or anything of that nature. Yeah. Um, I am a, a, a social worker. I do have a bachelor's in social work. And I am passionate about it and so i'm coming from it from a standpoint of a person in recovery my agency is is not we're not staffed by prevention professionals we're more along the lines of connecting folks to resources yeah however within our mission and our vision we we do certainly advocate for prevention early interventions uh, evidence-based treatment and and respect for all recovery pathways right mm-hmm. and so one of the things that we were able to do was to partner up with the abc commission's talk it out campaign um you can visit their website at www.talkitoutnc.org and uh, there is a wealth of information conversation starters fast facts um everything you can think of videos the whole nine it's one of the most impressive websites that i've visited and so what the way we partner with them i serve as a talk it out nc ambassador for the prevention of underage drinking specifically. And then uh, one of my staff members, Mr. Hector Mendoza, who's uh, Spanish speaking, he's also a, uh, a Talk It Out campaign ambassador and he reaches out to the Spanish speaking community. Nice. Yeah. That's awesome. I'm, when you said conversation starter, I was thinking through just that parenting piece. I can't get over that stat that you shared about essentially parents' underestimation of young people's drinking. Yeah. What do you think makes it so hard for parents to talk to their youth about alcohol? Well, I think really, honestly, just just stigma. Um, you know, I think somebody used the word taboo earlier. Uh, there are certain subjects that are just kind of uncomfortable, like having that, that sex talk with, with your uh, teenager <laughs> or, you know, things of that nature. Well, hopefully you have it before they're a teenager. <laughs> but, <laughs> but, you know, I think that because we stigmatize substance use disorder so heavily in our community, people are ashamed to ask for help when they develop a substance use disorder. And then in the meantime, people are just even ashamed to even, uh, or uncomfortable rather, to even just talk about the subject and, and understand that this is real, this is reality. It's not like um, our youth are not being exposed to alcohol, you know, and, and have access to it. It's, it's just, it's such a common, it's such a common issue 
some folks almost look at it like a rite of passage when, mm-hmm. when in fact it is not. Our youth do not have to subject themselves to the dangers and risks of alcohol use with their underdeveloped brain. Um, it is absolutely not a rite of passage. So, so I think that, you know, the Talk It Out website and the Talk It Out campaign is, uh, is specifically geared towards um, educating parents, helping parents understand that it, this is a, a very important conversation to have, and then giving them tips and strategies on how to go, move forward and have these all-important conversations. Would you think that the two kind of overarching strategies are education, which can be provided through community and schools, and then parenting. Would you agree with that, or is there more? Yeah, I mean, there's always more. There's, uh, you know, my son, uh, he played basketball, so, so there's, you know, there's always, there's that athletic component with your coaches. Some, mm-hmm. some, yeah. some kids, their coach is like God. Mentor, right? I mean, like yeah. that, there's no greater influence in their life than their coach. Um, you know, I experienced some of that when I was growing up. Uh, I was a football player, Patrick. I know, I know you, you can't tell it anymore. But oh, we can I, see I, it. <laughs> we can see it. <laughs> but, Kicker, um, right? Kicker. <laughs> but but I, I, think, I think that's a great start, right? Like, so, so yeah, if we have um, school staff and administration involved and we have parents involved, then that's a great start. But, you know, you got to understand that kids are getting influenced all over the place. It's in social media. It's you know, just different adults that folks come in contact with. Um, and you don't know who your child is going to gravitate towards mm-hmm. or, or have the utmost respect for. And so it's incumbent upon all adults, all adults to get educated about this subject, to, to, to have some tools in their toolbox on how to start and have this conversation early and often with all the youth that we come in contact with. Yes. Yes. When we're really putting this in a wellness space, I always think about the medical field responsibility of prevention rather than just treatment once it's become a substance use disorder. And, you know, what a foreign concept it would be for actually pediatricians Mm. to be involved in this space. Yeah. And how would parents really react to that? Right. Because of the, (laughs) the power of influence, they think, you know, if we talk about it, then that makes it happen. But we've got parents who are really underestimating the drinking in general and the problematic nature of the drinking and we've got kids saying it is a problem and likely hungry for more information more tools more escape routes more outs from drinking just wondering if that's a place you know just in our imaginations in our dream world that could be tapped into is that child wellness adolescent preteen wellness realm and how we could start talking about that in a way that's not taboo but health related absolutely yeah, I love it. I love it. I'm, I'm, I'm hoping some of those conversations are taking place as we speak. <laughs> yeah. It's just so crazy to me that we have all this data about alcohol in the brain. And, and we have, you know, all this information and, and all these facts about it. But we don't have a, a consistent message that's coming from teachers, doctors, members of the community, parents. It baffles me that we don't have like a, I mean, and, and that's why I love this idea of this Talk It Out campaign, Curtis, and, and what you guys are doing, to be able to put that message out there. But I, I think it's, you know, I having this conversation is obviously tough, 
but but I think one of the reasons that it's so tough is that we don't have like a like a solid concise message that we can mm-hmm. deliver to the kids and I think if we could crystallize that somehow it may be easier um I'm I'm scared to death to like have this conversation <laughs> with my kids I mean my kids are 9 9 4 and and 6 months old and I am not looking forward I mean, and, and coming from a person that doesn't drink, and, and my wife, you know, she barely drinks, it's, it, I still don't know, it's like, you know, you drink, I'm going to kill you, I'm going to, like, you know, right. it's you better not, you're, you know, you're allergic to it, you know, but, but like, I, I'm just like, I don't know, like, I mean, we're all kind of in this together in that regard, like, I know, you know, Robbie's got a, a young daughter, and in junior high and um <laughs> and, and and curtis i mean i i know you know your son just just started college and um how have you had these conversations with your son like how how did how did that uh, like how, how do you approach this as a as a dad because like i can i can talk the clinical jargon and but like when it comes to me and my own family yeah. like i don't know what the hell i'm doing <laughs> help help yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I know that, you know, so obviously everybody has to find find their own strategy behind it and their own comfort level. Me personally, after after what I went through in, in active substance use, um, to come out on the other side of it, I took the approach of I dove in head first, right? So so I'm a public speaker and one of the things that I've had the opportunity to do um many, many, many times is kind of share my story in public um, all across the country for that matter. But the most important place that I share my story is at home to me, right? So my kids are the most important things on the planet to me, the most important human beings on the planet to me. And so they, they got my story before anybody else did. My daughter was actually old enough to, re- to remember bits and pieces of what was going on and, and come to find out there was even a little bit of um, for lack of a better term some trauma um, related to parts of my you know returns to use and things of that nature and so on and so forth you know what i've discovered is that pretending like it doesn't exist or like like samantha stated like oh so talking about it's going to make it happen those are are myths those are misconceptions and, and so i'm absolutely upfront with my kids uh, they understand that their father is not a perfect person, and uh, but they also understand that there's not a perfect person walking this earth. Right. And so you know, there, there's nobody better than or less than. I went down a road in the path that uh, you know certainly I'm not proud of, but I am proud to be a person in long-term recovery. I'm proud of, of the person that I see when I look in the mirror today, and so I'm absolutely comfortable talking to um, my family members, to, to anybody. It doesn't matter if it's the president of the United States or the, or the person that's going to come in and run the vacuum cleaner at your office space later uh, today. Um, I treat everybody the same. And I think leveling that playing field in, in my heart, uh, or in our hearts rather, allows us to be uh, much more comfortable in having this conversation with just about anybody. Now, don't get me wrong. It's always going to be tougher, right? Because um, these are your precious babies. But I think you'll, what you'll find is once you start and enter in this conversation, and the more often that you have it, the more comfortability that, that you're going to find. Yeah. Mm. 
It's almost like if we allow the discomfort to seep in, we're making it about us instead of really, you know, what the little ones kind of deserve to know. Because I love what you're talking about, Patrick, of this kind of crystallized, unified message and how powerful that would be if it was across social media, wellness, and schools, and parenting. And, you know, if this, wait for it, shocker, if we all based all of our information on the actual science, the research, the data that's out there, and then we all just found an individual strategy that we were most comfortable with to communicate that same message, our kids wouldn't be confused. And I think that's one of the things that I think of when I used to work at teenagers, really asking them, you know, what do you know about alcohol use? You know, what's okay? What's safe when it comes to alcohol use? And their answers were all based on what their parents allowed or didn't allow and what the punishment was for whatever was not allowed. So it wasn't ever based on, I know alcohol is bad for you, or I know that it's you know going to affect my brain, or I know that I could get drunk and that's dangerous. It was always, it, the sentence would always start with, well, my parents told me that yeah. if I X, then Y. And yeah. that was their understanding of alcohol use was just what's the punishment or what's allowed. But very, very well said. Uh, parents have uh, w- much more influence on their kids than they than they realize. Um, a lot of times kids act like what we say doesn't doesn't matter <laughs> to them. But but when they get away from us, um, the things, the seeds that we planted in them, um, they're grown. They're there. Yeah. One thing that we we've come to understand, um, we talked about evidence based strategies and things of that nature is that scare tactics don't work with teenagers, right? They absolutely do not work. And so it's not about trying to scare somebody straight or, you know, that kind of thing. It's more so about just simply educating, providing our youth and adults for that matter with accurate information, the scientific data, and then allowing them to to use that information to hopefully make more healthy choices and decisions in their life. You know, nearly two thirds of middle school and high school age youth know people around their own age that have tried alcohol. The average age that a kid tries alcohol for the first time in North Carolina is 14 years old. I personally, I was 12. 38% of eighth graders have had alcohol at least one time. About 10% of 12 year olds say that they've tried alcohol, but by age 15, that number jumps up to 50%. Wow. Wow. More teens die as a result of alcohol use than all other illicit drugs combined. Mm. In North Carolina, one person dies every single week as a result of underage drinking. Wow. One a week. Wow. I just got chills. I hate that I'm in the field and don't even know those stats. I mean, that just shows you how much we don't talk about it. Right. Right. Yeah. Right. Talk about the opioid epidemic, but alcohol yeah. use. Because those numbers are reflected in adulthood, too. If you look at, you know, the killer yeah. of humans it's alcohol versus all other drugs, yeah. you know, by a vast majority. And so it's, you know, none of that is shocking or something that magically happens when you become an adult. It's something that's really starting at an incredibly early age, it sounds like. I constantly am trying to wrap my head around cracking the code. I mean, it feels like there is some sort of puzzle that we that we are having trouble figuring out. And and I love what Patrick said, and, and, and you as well, Curtis, about 
you know, trying to get everybody on the same page, but obviously that is a, that is a tough goal, <laughs> you know, because you have to incorporate the fact that many adults drink problematically. Many parents drink problematically. That, that's, that's the wedge. And that's, that's the wedge, exactly. Yeah. So how, if you're a parent and you drink, albeit maybe at a very low level, but you do drink to an extent that it seems a little abnormal, how do you educate your own child? That's the disconnect. That's the disconnect. So it's, so, like it's, we, it's, so it's, you know, there's constantly this lead by example, you know, uh, do as, don't do as I say, or whatever it is, don't do as I say, not as I do, doesn't work. Right. How are we all supposed to be on the same page when there's, when there's problematic stuff going on across the board? It's almost like everybody needs to be educated, not just the kids, parents too, so they can educate the kids properly. And yeah. I, and I, I don't know, and Curtis, I'll let you speak on this too. I don't know if that's even possible. I don't know how it could possibly be effective to have like problematic drinking going on in the home. And again, like when we talk about problematic drinking from like a scientific standpoint, like we'll refer back to earlier episodes. What's that? 14 drinks a week? Anything above oh, 14 drinks a week for men and seven for women? Anything than more than that is considered heavy drinking. But like, if more than that's going on in the home, and and you're trying to have a conversation with your with your kid about not drinking, and they're seeing the total yeah. opposite of what you're telling them, I don't know. That's the problem. I mean, yeah, I mean, how does that? How can you reconcile that? And and the only answer I can come up with yeah. is like we as parents and as adults. If we do have kids, we have to model a, a healthy behavior. You know, I mean, it, it, yeah. to me, and, and that's not the shame. You know, and this goes back to our earlier conversations, too, about we need to be careful about how we talk about this because we don't, we don't want to shame anybody and we don't want right. to, no. you know, but we, need, right. but we need to be honest about this and we need to, to, you know, look at things as they really are. So, Curtis, what do you think about well, Patrick, you know, it's not even 9 a.m. That's a pretty heavy question to <laughs> deal right. with. <laughs> you know, the short answer is champagne problems. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and cut. But <laughs> so that's one of the things that, that, I, that I, I'm impressed so much with about the Talk It Out NC campaign is that there's, a, there's a, an aspect of the campaign that's called Take the Pledge, right? Oh, yeah. And so there's a pledge card, and on one side... The young person is pledging this list, this series of, of things um, that they're committing themselves to. But the other side is the adult, the parent nice. normally, and they're taking this pledge. And one of the items listed in their in their pledge, they're not pledging to never drink alcohol, but they are pledging to drink responsibly, uh -huh. to show responsible behavior around this particular substance, um, especially in front of their their young folks. You know, yeah, we don't we might not have that 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 crystallized one size fits all message for everybody to embrace. But I think if we could get all North Carolina citizens to visit that Talk It Out website and maybe go ahead and decide to take that pledge with their youth, we'd be off to a tremendous start. Mm -hmm. Oh, man. Love that. It's really tough because if you if, you know, I think back to the young folks that I've worked with, their parents will come in and say, you know, I'll do anything to make sure that this kid doesn't go down the wrong path. And I'll say, well, what about reducing your drinking in the home? <laughs> I'll do anything <laughs> but that. that. 
Yeah. And it, and not in a shaming way, but just in a really understanding that part of prevention is also the modeling is also what's happening in the home. It is also what they're learning by observation, not by just the, you know, sit down talks that you have. Because if you look at parents who bring their kids in who are smoking marijuana or vaping, the parent has spent hours on Google trying to figure out how harmful it is to be able to tell their kid not to do it. Mm-hmm. But they're drinking a glass of wine while they're Googling it, right? And it's it, it's not that that needs to be a shaming thing. It's just that we've really got to understand that it is part of it. And if as a parent you think that you can extract your own drinking from prevention of your kids drinking, it just you're not totally open and willing to learning what that prevention is going to look like. Or, you know, you may at least just need to acknowledge that you're on board with parts of it and not other parts. <laughs> yeah. Well said, Sam. With your work in this in this space at the level that you're at, like how's the response been from community leaders, from community partners, um, in your speaking engagements and when you're meeting people that are kind of outside the alcohol and drug treatment or prevention realm, um, do you feel like like people are actually starting to pay more attention to this type of subject? I, I do, and, and I know I, I'll be the first one to admit I, I am an optimist. Um, I, I tend to you know, think on the more positive side of just about everything. Uh, how could I not, right? <laughs> but, but I think that one of the things that b- because the uh, the opioid epidemic has been dealt with so much differently than the crack cocaine epidemic that hit our country, yep. that as a result, Folks are taking a, a good hard look at, at all substance use disorders, not not just opiates. I think people are, are finally understanding that uh, most people use more than one thing, first of all, yeah. and, and that it's not an opioid problem. It's, it's a substance issue and it's a health issue. Mm-hmm. It's not a moral issue. It's, it's a wellness issue. Right. Mm-hmm. And I think that because of that, that's been one of the, the benefits. Um, so I've, I've had the opportunity to do presentations at um various chambers of commerce. Um, I, I just recently did a presentation, um, a couple of presentations actually, to the business leaders in the community up towards the mountains who are, are desperately trying to educate themselves and figure out how to help their community. Um, because the reality is that, I mean, some folks are even having trouble filling jobs. Mm-hmm. They can't find enough employees because they're, they're nobody, nobody, nobody can pass a you know a, a drug test and things of that nature. At this point in our society, folks are absolutely open to learning more, to figuring out what they can do to to help fight this issue. Um, I'm especially excited every time I get to talk to them about language and stigma. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and just, you know, how, how can we eliminate stigma? What part can I play in that process? Because I think that's going to carry us a long way to have these conversations like you and I are having this morning to normalize those, right? Can you give us like the rundown on language just for the average listener that doesn't come from like the addiction recovery world? So for example, when I introduced myself, I said, my name is Curtis Taylor and I'm a person in long-term recovery. And, and then I went on to tell you what that meant for me. And that in and of itself, if you think about the mental imagery that, that takes place in, in, in the mind when you hear me say that, 
as opposed to me saying something like, well, you know, I'm an addict or, or I'm dealing with substance abuse. Those terms have a negative connotation to them. Number one, the word abuse, it kind of places the blame at my feet. Like I'm an abuser type person. That, that's negative mental imagery. It's blaming. And, and we don't call folks with diabetes sugar abusers, right? We don't, you know what I mean? It's that, that doesn't even sound yeah. right. But we need to begin to uh, be very conscious of, of language choice um, and make sure that we're using terminology that does not perpetuate stigma. As a matter of fact, we can use terminology that helps eliminate it. It's matching behavior with morals is what we all try to do. When you're tossing in a substance that lowers inhibitions, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, you might tend to act outside of your morals and then therefore wake up with that conflict of I'm not behaving in the way that my morals, you know, are, are guiding me. And then there creates an issue and potentially more use and blah, blah, blah. But that dissecting of that statement is, is I think, very valuable. Absolutely. Not only do uh, these substances lower inhibitions, but, um, you know, you're dealing with that, that primitive human survival reward control pathway. And so the example that I always uh, give to an audience is I ask everybody, okay, so who in here can decide to hold their breath forever and not breathe again? Ready, set, go, right? And everybody laughs and, you know, obviously human beings aren't able, you know, we're not equipped to be able to do that. And the reason why is because there's a survival system inherent in every human being that will annihilate that particular piece of willpower that you think you have. Your lungs will absolutely kick in and you will take a breath and you can't override it, right? You can't reboot the system and, and do something different with it. And so I asked the folks, I said, well, are you weak because you can't decide to hold your own breath? No. Are, are, are you are you morally flawed because you can't do that? And of course, the answer is no. And I said, well, then, you know, that in that person's brain that's dealing with that substance use disorder, that particular substance is that driving force. That's the same mechanism within their system that is telling them basically what to do. Every minute of the day, that particular substance has now become more important than eating, sleeping, drinking, all basic human survival skills, even procreating, if you can imagine. The substance is their, their general, their lieutenant, their sergeant, and, and they can't just express willpower to overcome it. It doesn't work that way. Well, and I think it just adds even, you know, to bring it kind of full circle, why prevention with young people is so important. Because if you're talking about that system being rewired and formed that way, right, when you've got the amygdala in the brain kind of holding on to that memory from yep. age 12 or 14, yep. and that brain is learning at such a young age that that's something it needs to survive and avoid pain and discomfort and seek pleasure, mm -hmm. that doesn't go away by saying you're grounded if you drink. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, and it, just us knowing the language, the education, and being able to share that with our younger folks and, and really have that be known that if they get to a point where they feel the drive to drink or use substances, that we're already in a little bit of a scary zone in the brain. 
if it's not just, oh, I tried it with friends, but we're really being driven to use that being a key factor in all of the loving adults that are around that teenager really paying attention to some of that language, some of the behavior and doing all the prevention possible to reel that in. I love it. So see, Samantha brought us back home, guys. Um, you know, the reality. <laughs> she always <laughs> does. She always yeah, does. Man. So the, the earlier that someone is exposed to alcohol, then, uh, you know, the higher their risk of developing a substance use disorder, full blown. Um, yeah. And I, I can't remember. I wish I had the statistics verbatim, but uh, it's something like 40 times more likely. Like, so people, kids that uh, drink underage are like 40 or 41 times more likely to develop a substance use disorder than kids who just simply wait at least until they're 21. Yeah. 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 My mother had that question for me recently, and she was kind of not necessarily didn't believe it, but just wanted me to explain it, or at least was just being a mother and wanted to disprove something that I said. <laughs> um, <laughs> but she she said, "Now is that is that real? Is that a, is that is that your experience?" And I said, "You know, I started drinking at twelve, like yep. you, Curtis, and everybody that I was drinking with, we're all in recovery. <laughs> wow. All of us." Yeah. So, yeah, yeah, very yeah. true. Very, very true. Well, we want to talk about things like marijuana being gateway. And when you actually do the research around what gateway means, is it true? That sort of thing. Alcohol and nicotine are much better predictors, right? And anything that you use first that's psychoactive on the brain is the thing that's going to precede all other substances. And you get cross-sensitized. So you're more susceptible to the second substance that you use as a result of having used the first one. Mm. And in most cases, people are using alcohol first, making alcohol the actual quote-unquote gateway. But because it's legal, we just don't talk about it in the same way. And just having some of that education for parents to be able to share with their kids of like, look... This puts you at a huge risk for a lot of different things, and how do we delay that as much as possible? Wow, that's a heavy hitter right there. Look, Patrick, can I, can I bring Samantha yeah. on the road? Yeah. Is she available to travel and speak to folks? Hey, I'm a social She's worker not very too. Available, I can attest to that. I'm a social worker too, Curtis. I'm I'm passionate about this because it's it's tough treating it at stage four, right? It's really tough treating a severe substance use disorder and the family impact and all of that. So anytime we can get ahead of this, anytime we can get out into the community and do what we can to prevent that mess, mm -hmm. let's do it. I'm down. I am down. <laughs> one, one last question, Curtis, and you might've already answered this, but if you could give parents and community leaders one piece of advice about starting effective conversations around prevention, what would it be? Visit talkitoutnc.org, um, you know, for real. Um, there's there's, yeah. there's yeah. so much up there that can help. But I think that I would say do not allow fear or, or anxiety to prevent you from having this conversation. And that's whether it's with a young person or with whether it's with a legislator or a business leader, um, you name it. We, as a community, we need to be having this conversation um, with one another. Um, we're all learning as we go. You know, some folks might be considered an expert, but the reality is that if you're human, then you're learning every day. <laughs> At least I hope you are. 
And so don't be afraid, don't be ashamed, don't be anxious about making a mistake or saying something wrong. By all means, educate yourself and try to prepare for these conversations. But ultimately, we're all just imperfect humans trying to do the best we can one day at a time. And so the more we can embrace that, then the more comfortable we can be speaking with one another and letting folks know what's going on. But please, by all means, have these conversations. I love it. Thank you so much, Curtis. It was a pleasure listening to you talk. Your passion shines through. Uh, your personal experience shines through. And we are honored to have you on here. Patrick, when you said, like, I can have all the information and all the clinical jargon, but when it comes to my kids, it doesn't change the fact that that's big and scary and there's a lot of responsibility there. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, well, I can talk about the fact that, you know, my oldest son is nine, and uh, he thinks right now that if he takes a sip of alcohol, <laughs> it will kill him. <laughs> so, so so that, that that's how I prevent things in my household. <laughs> Yeah. We'll see how long he My way or that. death. I'm like, I don't give a shit what your friends say. You will die. I'm really interested in that idea of, you know, scare tactics kind of not working with teenagers. Because if you think about how invincible they think they are. Exactly. Whatever you shared with them is going to happen. There's that defiance and invincibility where they're like, well, that's not going to happen to me. So I'm going to do it and create my own outcome. Yeah. And. So I'm going to do it anyway versus kind of really giving them the actual information on what happens when you do drink, what the actual risks are, what's happening in your brain. Like Robbie said, they're hungry for it, right? They yeah. want to see it. And then they want to see responsible adults backing that up and modeling some of that behavior. And that's the rub. And that's why I think, and again, this is another thing that I'm just now thinking about as we're having this conversation. This is so cool. It's like, I think this... It, it, it might even be more powerful for the information to come outside of the household because I, I think right. so many parents are avoiding this conversation because they don't want to look at their own, you know, drinking, even if it's not that much, you know, it's like, well, shit, if I have this conversation with my kid, like I can't, you know, I'm going to have to start hiding my beer or like, right. you know, it's like, I mean, and it's not even po problematic drinkers. It's like people that drink socially or, you know, maybe one or two drinks a night. Those one or two drinks is, are so valuable to them at the end of the day that it's like, well, if I have this conversation with my kid, then you I'm know, a phony. It, it might not not I'm a phony, but it might put that it might put that in jeopardy. Mm -hmm. You know, I may not be able to drink at all anymore if my kid actually knows the truth. You know what I mean? So is the ideal situation shared responsibility around kind of educating our youth? Like if you've got young people in your lives, make sure that this is something that you're talking about, asking about, and kind of providing an open door for? Absolutely. I, I, I think there's a, there's, and it's not definite, but some sort of age threshold, right? Where kids are listening and then they stop. You know, I mean, my mm -hmm. daughter is really close to get to stopping mm -hmm. listening. And mm -hmm. I had my window up until, you know, when she turns 12 or 13, she's, she's, you know, we've kind of, we've kind of done as much as we can do. And, and now we're here to guide, you know, she's not listening as much mm -hmm. anymore to you, to me. Dad. No, exactly. No, to me. And, and yeah. to your point, moving it to outside of the home. Love that. Yeah. You know, like what, where's the teacher, where's the therapist, where's the coach, where's the, the grown up that is responsible and how can we all share that responsibility so that as these young people go through their phases, they're always hearing 
they're all they've always got an open door to talk about they've always got a safe space and that does change developmentally right the more that we mine the facts out and crystallize this message around this is what alcohol does to the brain these are the facts like these are your risks and that is common information it that means that it doesn't have to come from any single source because yeah. kind of like what it's Curtis what, what Curtis was saying like everybody's fallible man we're human beings and if it's coming from a parent or it's coming from a community leader or it's coming you know every you know and then the next thing you know that you know community leader gets arrested or you know you see your parent drunk at a party it's like okay well obviously none of that meant anything so mm-hmm. I, I think that's where the important piece of us you know getting our ducks in a row and find out figuring out how, you know, this message exactly needs to be delivered. And it doesn't need to be delivered in a shaming way or a, you know, this is the right thing to do or moral thing for you to do is not to drink. We just need to get our story straight. Yeah, the information. I mean, everything that we're covering here, you know, is is meant to inform. And then you can make your decision, but Mm -hmm. you've got to be informed. And I think that's the same approach we need to take with, with our young kids. Right. Can you imagine if one of the assignments in like health class in middle school or high school was to actually spend a certain amount of hours on Talk It Out or, you know, be able to, if that was part of a health screening at school that your, you know, school nurse was actually asking you about alcohol use, not just safe sex, not just, you know, sexual activity, those sorts of things, but they were actually asking about alcohol use. And everybody was delivering the same information. Right. Talk it out. And at least we would be able to screen accurately and share with the parents where where the risk zones are, right? Because if we've got, I keep thinking back to Dr. Rodriguez's, how she shared that it's so important for us to, when we look around, we tend to overestimate how much our peers drink. Is that right? Yes. Like the people we around us, we overestimate, right? So yeah. if you think about the power of the peer relationship as a teenager, it's not shocking that they're estimating high that their peers are drinking problematically but it's just so interesting that parents uh, that there's such a huge discrepancy in the parents reporting so low so I can imagine maybe for peers you know especially at a bragging age where they think oh my friends are drinking so much more than I am I can imagine that being a tiny bit skewed but not to the discrepancy of 94 percent to some 50 percent where there's a huge gap there in parental awareness of underage problematic drinking and the kid's perception that everyone's drinking more than me. And what do I do about that for them? And what do I do about it for me? I don't even know how to respond to that. It's so deep. (laughs) But that's the thing is it it stumps us even as professionals of how how do we respond to these things? And this is what keeps a lot of grownups from having these conversations with our youth is we just... What if I don't know the answer? What if I don't know how to guide them in the right direction? Which is why I love that Curtis always brings it back to, well, go to talk it out. Robbie and I were talking about earlier today. It was like, well, the the best way to carry that message is to model it. Yeah. So one of the questions we get a lot is, you know, if we've got a young person in our life that's, let's say they're in their teens, how do I start this conversation? What questions do I ask? What do I share with them? And what's appropriate? These are my first thoughts on it. It's like, maybe I don't know if it's possible to have an effective conversation 
with a teenager where you're telling them not to drink or, you know, while you're actively drinking. So it's it's one of two things. It's like you either don't drink around them or maybe you're not the one to have the conversation with them. Or you don't tell them not to drink. You have more of a conversation about it. And because and, this is the way I've got a little I've got a mentee that I've been with for eight years and now he is reaching high school. And so we have had these conversations. He knows I don't drink. You know, he, he doesn't quite grasp it, but he definitely talks about like oh, hey give me a beer you know let me get that beer and all that and he's and it's he's totally joking and he hasn't drinking yet he, he he assures me but the conversation around it is much less about you know here's why it's so bad it's more let's talk about you know who your friends that are doing it why are they doing it you know when i was your age i did this and and some of my friends didn't you know it some of when I got later, it turned into this. I mean, it was just like matter of fact conversation, really. Yeah. It's not, it's going to cause this and you have the potential to this and the statistics show. You know, that, that's not how he, I can yeah. communicate with a young person. Here, but here, here's my issue with it. If we kind of take that approach and it's like, okay, well, if you're a moderate drinker, well, what does that mean? Like, and where, where I think we could really mess up. As, as adults and, and people that are moderate drinkers, is if, if you believe you're a moderate drinker, like, but you're drinking, you know, five or six drinks a night, if that is considered moderation for you, um, yeah, you know, maybe you're not the right one to have that conversation. I would take the complete opposite approach because I'm going to assume if I'm in the life of a young person and it's not my child, I'm going to make the assumption that someone somewhere is already telling them what they should and shouldn't be doing. I'm going to come at it from much more of a place of like, Hey, do you have any questions about alcohol? Do you have any questions about how your friends drink? Do you, you know, do you know this about alcohol? Yeah. And more of an exploratory and sharing if prompted way, but I'm not sharing just to be another adult that's like telling them about my experience. And you've got to be really prepared when you're opening up these conversations for that's them to go, yeah, like, why do you drink? Yeah. I mean, that that's the key. And I'm afraid, I'm afraid that people will kind of take, and not this, what we're talking about here. If the push culturally is like, yeah, talk to your kids about drinking and and you are not prepared with with the facts and you're not prepared to answer those questions like you can actually end up doing more harm than good because what you hear a lot of times where parents are sharing that there's a safe amount of alcohol yeah. and it's you know it's how much i drink cuz i'm good <laughs> yeah you know but i think just creating some of that open space knowing that they're so hungry of hey are there any questions that you have about alcohol and let's make sure we get you those answers. Not I am the expert and have the answers because I drink alcohol, but we can go to talk it out. We can go to some of these other resources that already exist for education that are data driven, are scientific based and share some of that there. What are some of the things you've heard about alcohol? Like what do your friends say about it? What do your parents say about it? And really just understand where the kid is at with it because a lot of it's going to start from there. If they've never drank and they're terrified of it, we're in a different place than a kid that's like, well, I drink about the same amount as my dad, and mm-hmm. that's X amount per week. This is why people don't get into it, right? Because it's tough, and it feels hypocritical, and we're saying, hey, talk to them about it, but it also feels like we're saying, but don't talk to them about it if you're not modeling what you would want to see in them. Yeah. And there's got to be a little bit of distinction. When you're sharing scientific information 
about what low risk is. Sorry, but there is a difference between an adolescent brain and an adult brain. So while it is safe-ish for me to have one drink on an occasion, it's not safe for an adolescent to have one drink on one occasion. So there is a little bit of a difference between, yes, I want to model that I want you to do what the adults are doing, but there is a difference scientifically in what's safe for adults versus safe for an adolescent brain. Yeah. And and I and I don't where where my mind goes with that is like what is the most effective delivery method of that information and is it yeah. from is it coming from a teacher, is it coming from a primary care doctor, or is it coming from a parent that moderately drinks? Because if we screw up that avenue, yeah, that information it becomes weak. Yeah, please don't communicate facts to your child about drinking if you don't have the facts. <laughs> oh yeah, well, good point. Don't communicate with them around your own experience. If it's about moderate drinking, if it's about mild drinking, if it's about what worked for you or didn't work for you, please have some of the evidence behind what you're sharing with them. I think that's like the only conversations that are happening sure. in our, I mean, and, I, and I'm, you know, I may be wrong, but like, I think that that's the bulk of what we're doing. So can there be some separation between what you're allowed to do while living in this household and what the science is because right now the only thing they know is what they're allowed to do or not allowed to do and the only thing that does is have them not want to get caught so if we put some of the education back in an educational sphere right in a wellness Mm -hmm. in a medical in a education piece then we're coming at it from these are the facts about alcohol use and at the end of the day parents are still going to decide what's allowed in their household or not but we can't just have that be the basis for how much kids drink. What do you think about that, Robbie? Terrifying. Yeah. It just, you know, the first thing that comes to my mind is just the difference in kids. <laughs> you know, yeah. it's, it's, there is just not, there's just no one stroke. You know, every kid is different. Mm-hmm. Some listen to their parents, some don't. Some listen to their coaches, some don't play sports. You know, it's just how, how to figure out what the, the avenue is to deliver the information. This whole conversation brings me back to, you know, what Chris said when he was on about, you know, the scariest thing about addiction is that we don't know who has it. Mm -hmm. We've just got to provide the best opportunity. I mean, if you think about your job as a parent, right, I've heard most parents describe that as I just want to give my kid the best opportunity to succeed, whatever that means for them. And you can't, this isn't, hey, you're responsible for the outcome. You're just responsible for what you're putting in front of them and hoping that they really, you know, do something healthy with that, that it equips them. The whole mission of our podcast, right, is to equip with information. And as parents, that's what we're asking for is just let's equip them. Let's give them the best opportunity to make the best decisions with with this thing. It doesn't mean if they don't do it that it's all your fault. I think some of the facts that Curtis stated, and, I, and I've seen the, you know, the data around the, you know, higher probabilities of developing a substance use disorder the earlier you, you know, have your first drink. And it is something. I mean, Staggering. if you have, if, and, and, and I'm not, I don't want to, I'm going to guess here, but it is like if, if you start drinking at age 12, like you have a, it's like a 40, 40, to, 40 times mm-hmm. more chance of developing a severe substance use disorder. Yeah. I mean, I just, I don't think people know that. Well, and, and let's also throw this in there, because if you dig into the information and, and look at the statistics, 
being sensitive to shaming and all this stuff that we, we are absolutely very much in tune with, but we also can't deny some of the facts. And, and the facts yeah. are that underage drinking takes place more times inside a household where problematic drinking is going on. Yeah. That is a fact. Yep. It's a fact. So, uh, you know, as much as I don't want to shame a parent, as much as I, I, am, I am sensitive to all of this stuff, that is the truth. And it's something everybody needs to understand prior to all of these things that we're talking about. <laughs> you know, the strategies, the messaging, the delivery. You know, the fact is, if there's a lot of drinking going on in your house, it's not working in your favor. Yeah. It might be the first step to prevention with your kids, at least, of taking a look at your own alcohol use. Maybe not what anyone wants to hear, but maybe one of the strongest pieces of evidence. And if you're not ready to do that, and again, this doesn't come from a shaming place, then then don't drink with your kids. Yeah. Don't let your kids drink in your house. Yeah. There's a lot of good places to go with this. I think just being able to give our listeners some of the takeaways from today, what do you guys really feel like are the main points either from Curtis or from our discussion on prevention educate yourself yeah yeah if 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 you are serious about this which I know anybody that has a relationship with a younger person or is a parent we know you're serious about this Mm -hmm. and so educate yourself there there are ways to do it yeah and I, I really like what what Curtis said about you know having the courage and not letting your fear and anxiety get in the way of starting these conversations you know, we have we have to start somewhere, and we can't act like this isn't an issue. Yeah. Be- because you know these are kids, and and their brains are developing, and the last thing that they need, you know, at least I, I want the best for my kids, and I obviously want you know the best future for them as well, which involves you know every other young human being on this planet, and them being in the best shape to make you know the best decisions for the future of our society. And in my eyes, alcohol doesn't have a place. Mm-hmm. In, in that you know it's 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 not okay for me it's really the person first kind of language I mean the minute we can go person first we've already taken down some of the taboo stigma kind of yuckiness around this discussion and the majority of our podcast really is just about being able to get the information out there and being willing to start these conversations in the community in the home and that sort of thing and we've got to start with really caring language that gets us outside of ourselves and ready to equip others with what they need to know to make the best decisions. I'm a big fan of today. Y'all know prevention's my jam. And you know, anytime we can get out in front of this thing, I mean, let's do it. Can you talk to my kids? Yeah, (laughs) Sam, please. The information and opinions shared on this podcast are solely those of the hosts and guests and are not a substitute for medical advice. If you feel like you may need professional help, here are some resources. For the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration hotline, call 1-800-662-4357 or visit smsa.gov. For listeners in the Charlotte, North Carolina community, visit dilworthcenter.org or call 704-372-6969 or visit theblanchardinstitute.com or call 704-288-1097.